Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The global pandemic of coronavirus COVID-19 continues on in the world. The numbers of confirmed cases continue to rise in the United States as well. There's more than 13,000 cases as of now. Those numbers constantly changing. It's going to be more. And more local governments are imposing stricter social distancing rules. The strongest clampdown right now is in the Bay Area, which has advised people to shelter in place. L.A. County just imposed very similar rules. But despite all these rules, we continue to see many people out and about. For more on this, we spoke to Erin Alday. She's a health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle to talk about how the clampdown is going a few days in and also how hospitals are preparing for a wave of coronavirus cases. So I'll tell you about the restrictions, first of all. It's defined as everybody's told to stay home, stay away from others as much as they can. You're allowed to go out for what's called essential business, which at this point is fairly loosely defined and that people um, can go grocery shopping. Um, they can go out for home supplies, so toilet paper, cleaning products, you know, diapers, whatever you might need in your home, um, but also auto body shops, veterinarians, hardware stores. Lots of places kind of fit that criteria of what's considered essential. I will say for now, I think that there's room for these measures to tighten up even further if we're not seeing sort of the improvement in case counts that, that folks are looking for. But for now, that's where we're at as far as the restrictions. We are a couple of days into it. And, you know, it seems like people are are taking this seriously. I think we're still feeling out the, the boundaries here. People are still kind of figuring out what's appropriate and what's not. You know, there's a lot of people that are going outside right now because they're encouraged to go outside. It's not healthy to just be in all the time. But, you know, you get enough people outside in one spot and, and it sort of defeats the purpose of social distancing. So I think some things like that we're kind of adjusting to and, and there may be, you know, changes with that over time. Watching some of the TV coverage and all, they showed a, a few images of people out and about jogging, walking and all that stuff. And you're right. It, there was a lot of people out there. So it's tough to get a handle on that. And, you know, it's not a full lockdown yet, like you said, but we could be getting there at some point. The U.S. has reported at least 165 deaths, over 11,000 cases across all 50 states now. And obviously that's subject to change. It's changing so fast. But, yeah, it's tough to adjust to all of that. What about the homeless population? Because with shelter in place, obviously some of these people don't have anywhere to go. What's the ruling on how they should be operating in the city? The word is it, from the orders that, that they should seek shelter if at all possible, which, of course, is, is, you know, a lot of people really took issue with that because obviously if they could get shelter, they would be in shelter. Um, I know that there are efforts to, you know, arrange for hotels, to arrange for RVs, to arrange for places, you know, temporary shelters for those folks to go, you know, where they can have some separation. Because frankly, even people who have some housing, like in single room occupancy spaces, those aren't necessarily safe either because they're sharing bathrooms. Um, you have a lot of people in a very, in very close quarters. So there's definitely a lot of work that's going into figuring that out right now. And again, finding sort of short term solutions for where people can safely shelter. But, you know, I think that that's just that's another work in progress. How are the Bay Area hospitals preparing for a possible wave of cases? Uh, obviously, not everybody gets uh, the most severe type of symptoms, but 
this is what we're all prepping for. So they're definitely in full preparation mode right now. Folks I talk to, it's sort of a mixed response of what they're seeing right now. It still sort of feels like to them, like an elevated flu season. So they're definitely seeing a lot of cases, a lot of patients, but not too much at this point. But they're all anticipating definitely bracing for that to get worse. And so they're already doing things like several hospitals um, and doctor's offices have set up outdoor triage areas. So where they invite patients by, by doctor's orders to come by, stay in their cars, get sort of checked out by a nurse or a doctor, um, you know, if they're reporting respiratory symptoms and then told, you know, if they need to come into the hospital for more care or if they can go home and kind of safely isolate there. The point of that is both to keep those folks out of hospitals where they could potentially infect others if they do, in fact, have uh, COVID-19. Um, but also, you know, things like so that a nurse who has seen somebody who's sitting in their car doesn't have to change out, you know, their face mask for every single patient. They can reuse that. And, you know, that's a big thing that's happening in hospitals right now is they're already anticipating or maybe even facing short supplies of really critical uh, protective equipment. And so they're, you know, they're reusing face masks. They're limiting the circumstances when staff can use face masks. I think that's one of the big issues right now is fearing for the supply chain in the long term. Kaiser Permanente, which is a big provider here, told me a couple days ago that they've stopped pretty much all of their preventive care, which is a huge part of, of Kaiser's kind of service, that they do things like mammograms and pap smears and stuff. And they've just, they're, they're knocking all that off for the time being just because they need to have all hands on deck for potential um, COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, that's the one of the hardest parts about it is just preparing for the potential cases. You know, they're not there yet. The severity is not there yet. And, and it's just tough to, you know, be ready and get all of the equipment and, and supplies that you need. Any word on ventilators? Because I know that's been a big thing that a lot of people have been talking about. Uh, we're ordering a bunch of, uh, through the federal government. But there in the Bay Area specifically, do we have any sense of uh, how prepared we are with ventilators? You know, my impression is that the Bay Area is actually a little bit better prepared than a lot of other parts of the country. And I think some of the concern is that we may be called upon to kind of help out with other places um, if, as other places kind of run out. But it's a concern everywhere. I mean, it's part of the problem with this, as you pointed out, is we don't we don't know how bad this is going to get. And so, you know, right now it's feeling OK. And, and the hospitals I talk to say that they have a good a good stock of those that they can rely on. But it doesn't take much to hit capacity on that. And that's that's the big fear is that we're going to reach this kind of, you know, th th these cases are going to surge and we are going to run out and something like ventilators, you can't just, you know, order up more of those. So I think that they're trying to do that now. They're trying to prepare for that. But again, the Bay Area is in a little better, better shape than some places is my impression. Um, so we may not be kind of at the front of the line for that. Aaron Alday, health writer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Continuing on the coronavirus story, many experts have signaled that the U.S. could be in for a shortage of life-saving ventilators amid this pandemic. While we currently are not in a shortage, hospitals are trying to brace themselves for a spike in severe cases where patients need help breathing. For more on this possible ventilator shortage, we spoke to Dr. Janet Neshwat. Fox News medical contributor. We don't have a ventilator shortage right now. This is just a matter of predicting the future, the predicting our potential needs and preparing for the potential of having to have thousands and thousands of more ventilators. We currently have thousands in our current stockpile here in the United States, but it's estimated that we may be thousands short. But as it is right now, manufacturers have been working with our government's administration to help create and produce 
not only more ventilators, but also PPEs, were, which are just as critical for healthcare providers, PPEs, meaning gowns, masks, gloves, those sorts of things. For those that aren't familiar with what a ventilator is, sometimes an infection can get into your system and can cause shock and people can stop breathing on their own. So the ventilator is just an artificial breathing tool until your body is well enough and strong enough to breathe on its own, if you will. So that's the purpose of that. Someone comes in with respiratory distress and oxygen isn't helping, steroids aren't helping, and they're not able to breathe on their own. Uh, You know, they lose consciousness sometimes, and that's when we have to put them on a ventilator. And that means where we put a tube into your body so that we can do artificial breathing for you. And the goal is it's just to be temporary until your body heals. Yeah, the administration has said that they've ordered a lot more. Obviously, we have a stockpile also, but they're encouraging states and cities and other hospitals to go straight to the manufacturers, I guess, to order them as well. These things can be very costly. One of the manufacturers is called Medtronic. So a Medtronic ICU ventilator can cost between $25,000 to $50,000, and they're big. They're big items. But beyond this also the people needed to operate these ventilators is important also. And as you mentioned, there's not necessarily a shortage now, but we're trying to get ahead of this. So predicting the future, but there are lower numbers of people that can actually operate these things as well. We have what are called RTs, respiratory technicians, who are just phenomenal in monitoring patients who are on ventilators. They work closely with ICU pulmonologists, and they are just critical in the field of pulmonology and ICUs. And yes, if you are short on healthcare providers, then it defeats the purpose of having the equipment. So that's why it's so important that we keep our healthcare providers that we do have healthy and safe, and also not only stock up on ventilators and other supplies, but also have surge staffing to help meet the potential surge capacity that we may see here in the next few weeks. Doctor, I wanted to ask about your practice in general, and patients that you've seen coming in, uh, obviously worried that they might have coronavirus. You've done a bunch of testing as well. Tell us about that process and just patients that you've seen and most likely suspect that they have this as well, right? It's not a surprise that we're going to see increased number of cases, especially as we have the expansion of testing capability. I have had patients come in with flu-like symptoms, COVID-like symptoms. The symptoms overlap. A lot of them are, are similar, fever, cough, shortness of breath, a sore throat, you know, runny nose, congestion. So what we do is initially we will check their vitals and do an influenza test first, which is a quick test that you swab the nose. And if that is positive, then we stop right there and we will send them home on medications and follow-up instructions. But if it's a negative test, and they have fever, low oxygen levels, and they don't look well, and they meet the criteria, then we will proceed to swab them for coronavirus. And while we wait for those results, we put them on 14-day quarantine so that they are not infecting other people while we're waiting for those results, which can take several days up to a week as it is right now. But soon, and I hope, we'll be able to have um, more rapid testing results. Is there any specific medicine that you prescribe? Let's say they test negative for the flu, and we suspect they have COVID-19. Is there any medication that you're prescribing at that point? As of right now, there is no FDA-approved medications to treat 
COVID-19 coronavirus. There are some areas of the world where they're using, uh, for example, antivirals like called remdesivir, Kaletra, some anti-HIV medicine, and some Ebola medicines have been tried. Also, some malaria medications have been used as a last resort. But as it is right now, the only thing I'm prescribing are supportive medicines. Like, for example, if someone says, I just feel a little short of breath, I will give them a breathing nebulizer machine in the office and I will prescribe to them an, an inhaler, like an albuterol inhaler, for example. And if they're coughing, I will also you know, say, hey, use a humidifier, drink lots of fluids, stay hydrated, you can use some over-the-counter cough medicine, some over-the-counter Tylenol ibuprofen for fever, and sometimes I'll prescribe prescription strength cough medicine like benzonate capsules or something like that. So it's more symptomatic care, but of course, that's not all. We, we really have to make sure that we're giving them very strict precautions to stay home and rest so that they don't spread to other people, even if it's not coronavirus. The flu, that's contagious. You could spread that as well. Dr. Jeanette Neshwat, Fox News medical contributor and family and emergency medical doctor. Thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The other ongoing theme in this pandemic right now is testing. We're seeing numbers go up and there's going to keep going up as the government gets to speed and also the private labs get up to speed, such as the Mayo Clinic, who has made their own test that can detect the virus that causes COVID-19. For more on why continued testing is so important, we'll speak to Dr. Bill Morris. He's the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. So Mayo Clinic uh, Laboratories, we actually perform testing not only for our Mayo Clinic patients, but for patients across the United States and across the globe. So we're continually looking out for new tests that are going to be needed to support patient care. And in particular, we look out for new pathogens that might need to be diagnosed. So we are paying very close attention to how the COVID-19 disease was playing out in China. And about four weeks ago, our own internal Mayo Clinic doctors started to inquire about the availability of COVID-19 testing. And as we saw the disease really overwhelm the healthcare system in China, we determined that really we would want to develop our own diagnostic assay for the disease, even though at that time, a testing was mandated to go through the CDC. So we've been working on the test for about a month. We do have a partner lab in China Wuxi Diagnostics, and so we really got firsthand uh, accounting of how difficult it was to keep up with the demand for testing. So we pretty much put a team on this around the clock to develop our own molecular test to detect the virus. And so that was something that gave us a bit of a head start. So we were able to, late last week, actually introduce a clinical test to detect the virus in clinical specimens. And how does the testing work, and what is the turnaround time for results? So the testing works by a method called PCR. So basically, it's a molecular amplification of the SARS-CoV-2 virus out of the specimen. Once we get the specimen in the lab, it takes us anywhere from four to five hours to actually generate a result. So if we can get the specimen to us quickly, we can usually turn around a, a test within a day or so. I've read that the Mayo Clinic there works in close contact with the Minnesota Department of Health. I guess results are sent there to be verified after? Not verified per se, just the assay that we have is actually approved for use by the FDA. So a result is a result, a positive is a positive, a negative, a negative. The Minnesota Department of Health really needs to know about when we have a positive case because really they're trying to track how the disease is spreading in the state. And that's why the CDC and all the departments of health are actually working collaboration so we can understand how it spreads across the country, which is, of course, really important as we try and contain the spread of COVID-19. In fact, that rationale 
explains why typically when a new infection or pathogen becomes present in the United States, the initial disease testing is almost always handled by the CDC just because it gives them a good handle about how the disease is spreading and also to make sure that the diagnosis is accurate. However, in this case, again, this COVID-19 has really overwhelmed what's usually a very robust system for responding to these things. So we still perform our testing, but report it to the Minnesota Department of Health. Some numbers that we've been seeing, the U.S. has completed about 20,000 coronavirus tests as of last Friday. So the testing response has been very slow up until now. It'll start ramping up with tests like yours and others as well. Once we start getting true numbers, true tests, we're going to see the numbers rise of confirmed cases. But help explain to us why this is of the utmost importance. There's really two reasons why getting the testing done is really important. Number one, it's to really understand and protect those who are at particular risk for this particular COVID-19 infection. If you look at the experience in China and in Northern Italy, where we're now getting results published in the medical literature, it really is becoming apparent that for patients that are young and healthy, it poses a pretty minimal health risk, similar to influenza or other respiratory viruses. But for the elderly or those with an underlying medical condition, they can get into really serious trouble requiring intensive hospitalization. And so the first aspect of the testing is really to identify who has it to make sure that we can try and protect those who might be particularly at risk for having a bad outcome from COVID-19 infection. And the other is to understand how the disease is spreading across the United States so we can really try and institute containment measures, which are becoming shown to be really important in protecting those who are particularly likely to develop bad disease. So that, of course, is balanced against the fact that this is an extremely unusual situation where you have essentially on the turn of a dime, 200 million Americans wanting a test that didn't exist two to three months ago. And so the national supplies are not endless, and we really need to be thoughtful about who gets the testing. That's why it's really important that people who want the testing first get screened by their primary care provider to make sure that they actually need the testing before it gets performed. And also to make sure they get tested for other viral illnesses. It's still most cases of viral respiratory tract infection that you'll see in the community will be influenza A or other more common viruses, right? So that's why. So that's really important to do the testing in the right people to protect them and to protect the public. I've had some friends that said, I don't feel any symptoms. Maybe I'm asymptomatic. I want to get tested anyways. So people are are clamoring for this, but, you know, got to take the advice, obviously. The people that are experiencing symptoms, all that need to go first. That's where the necessity is. Look, there's a lot of unknown with this. SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 infection, which of course engenders a lot of fear. I get it completely. And yet we have to be thoughtful to make sure that we can have the test available, say if someone comes to the hospital and we have to make a rapid decision as to whether they need isolation or as it turns out, if they do have this disease and they're short of breath, they might need to get into an intensive care unit early. As much as people want to know if they have the infection, which is totally understandable, we have to be sure as healthcare providers that we have the ability to test the patients where we're going to be making really critical decisions that will affect people's lives. Dr. Bill Maurice, president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.